Faye, I'm so happy to announce that we have a new patron. Yeah, our new $10 patron is Save the Mommies. Save the Mommies is a peripartum cardiomyopathy advocacy organization. You should check them out on Twitter at Save the Mommies, M-O-M-M-I-E-S. They also have a website that's savethemommies.com. Um, if you're interested in getting involved with them or hearing more about their cause, check them out. They're a great, great organization. Um, and we are so happy to feature them on our peripartum cardiomyopathy episode. Thank you very much. Uh, Faye, I don't know about you, but out here in Washington, we're starting to see COVID on the rise yet again. Same here. We're getting a lot more COVID patients back on the wards over here, Nick. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to really like find and get back into what exactly I needed to do with a COVID patient after not seeing patients for so long with it. Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, a lot of these resources are on the OBG Project's website and you can go in and go and find all the information that you need about COVID-19 outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy. Yeah, they've got a button on their website that has topics ranging from FAQs for gynecologic care, treatment guidelines for COVID-19 if you've been reassigned outside and been placed into an ICU, as well as key research um, that's coming out, new stuff every single day. Exactly. And the best way to get all of this information is if you subscribe to OBG First, which is their subscription service, you can get all of this information plus more and also create your own library of all the resources that you want from their website. If you're a chief resident, you can get OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, see how you can get OBG First and all these nice COVID-19 updates for absolutely free. guys welcome back this is Faye. this is nick and this is creags over coffee. coffee so today we're gonna be doing our episode on an update on what we know about covid19 in pregnancy um, and we'll also spend a small time of our podcast today talking about the recent uh, vaccine recommendations from the fda So our learning objectives for today will be number one, to understand most recent data about COVID-19 and adverse pregnancy outcomes. Number two, to learn about birth and neonatal outcomes in people who are pregnant with COVID-19. And finally, number three, discuss the vaccine recommendations for pregnant and breastfeeding persons. All right, so Faye, we last talked about this, can you believe it, way back in March of 2020. Wow. (laughs) It's now December of 2020, literally just a couple days after the approval of this vaccination. Um, It's crazy to think that we've been this far. Again, I think as you've already stated, our hope today is just to help a little bit with synthesizing, digesting the information that's out there. Um, But obviously, we're not the CDC, um, and (laughs) this will not be completely comprehensive. Right. So I wanted to start off first by talking about some of the data that we have about, you know, morbidity, mortality, things like that um, for pregnant people with COVID-19. And so I thought we would talk a little bit about the uh, Morbidity and Mortality Week report from November of this year that the CDC put out, which had a lot of great data. So first of all, it looked at data from January 22nd to October 3rd, 2020, um, with a time lag essentially for data updates um, up to October 28th 
of this year um, because knowing that there could be some updates for the cases that were reported up until the 3rd of October. Um, they looked at both pregnant and non-pregnant symptomatic women who tested positive for COVID-19, and they looked at reproductive age women, so between the ages of 15 to 44 is how they defined that. Overall, they identified over 400,000 symptomatic women, and of these women, 23,434 were pregnant. And what they did was looked at morbidity from COVID-19. So overall, ICU admissions, looking at ventilation, those who received ECMO, death, etc. So Nick, what were their findings? Probably what many of you have experienced out there are that pregnant women are more likely to have severe COVID-19-associated illness. Um, once the CDC adjusted for age, race, other medical conditions, pregnant women were more likely to be admitted to the ICU uh, with an adjusted risk ratio of three, more likely to receive ventilation, an adjusted risk of, again, almost three, more likely to receive ECMO with adjusted risk of two and a half, um, and then also had a greater risk of death at about a 1.7 relative risk. So again, extremely high risk for pregnant women with two or threefold the complication rate of the general population. Um, some other interesting findings from the MMWR report were that older women were more likely to have ICU admission and severe disease um, when you compared women ages 35 to 44 versus women 15 to 24. Um, and this was a little less than threefold more likely for older women to have ICU admission or severe disease. Black women had a higher risk of death. Um, black women made up 14.1% of all women involved, but they represented over 36% of deaths overall and also over 26% of pregnancy-associated deaths, um, increasing an unfortunate trend that we've seen across a lot of other things in maternal medicine. There's an increased ICU uh, admission risk for Asian women as well with a relative risk of 6.6 .6, and also for native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander women at a risk of 3.7 fold. Pregnant Hispanic women were had a 2.4 fold increased risk of death over um, non-Hispanic women, which again, we see these racial and ethnic disparities that I think have captured the news attention and unfortunately are the story of COVID-19. Right. There were some limitations on the MMWR data, just to review quickly that COVID-19 cases in this report rely on voluntary report by healthcare providers and public health officials. There certainly is some reporting bias in this instance because we might report more if there's more severe disease and you're less likely to report that asymptomatic or mild disease. So we may be overestimating effects to some degree. Um, and then severe outcomes might require more time to ascertain. Again, this MMWR report had a time lag through October 28th when looking at cases reported through October 3rd. So there may actually even be under ascertainment of some of these severe outcomes based on that. So Faye, that was the big MMWR report. There are other pregnancy outcomes data that have been published though. Right. And so I will preface this by saying that there have been a lot of studies that have come out about COVID-19 and pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these studies tend to have smaller sample sizes, definitely smaller than the amount of women that were included um, in the CDC numbers. So I wanted to talk a little bit, first of all, about kind of overall during the pandemic, and then also specifically to people who were diagnosed with COVID-19 during pregnancy. 
So, um, you know, one interesting thing that I had heard, at least kind of towards the maybe beginning or middle of the pandemic uh, this year, was that overall, um, there was potentially a lower risk of preterm birth or stillbirth. Hmm. Um, and so data for this has been kind of mixed. Um, there was a Danish report that showed some decreased preterm rates overall. Um, and then there was a UK study that showed that maybe the preterm birth rate risk was increased because of the pandemic. And then most recently, there was a paper that actually came out in JAMA in um, just a few days ago um, that looked at two hospitals in Philadelphia where there was not an increased rate of preterm birth during the pandemic. Conflictingly, a study in the same city in October um, showed that there actually was potentially a decreased preterm birth rate at that one hospital. So, you know, clearly kind of conflicting data. And I will say that maybe this has to do with different time periods of the pandemic in general that people were looking at. Um, and also in different countries and different regions of the United States itself, there may be differences in lockdown methods, um, amount of stress on certain populations, et cetera, that could have contributed to this conflicting data. I think more interestingly is we want to know what are the pregnancy adverse events that can be associated with having COVID-19, right, during pregnancy. Hmm. So there was a pretty large study that came out of Texas um, in November of this year looking at women who tested positive for COVID um, versus women who did not during their pregnancy. And they looked at things, um, their composite primary outcome was uh, a composite of preeclampsia with severe features, cesarean delivery due to fetal tracing abnormalities, and also preterm birth. Um, and overall, there was no difference in composite outcomes of these things, and there was also no difference in individual outcomes as well. However, if we do look at the preterm birth data from the birth and neonatal outcome, MMRC, um, from the CDC, there was it looked like there was an increased preterm birth rate of 12.9% in women with COVID-19 infection, which was higher than the general population in 2019, which was 10.2%. So potentially having COVID-19 may increase your risk for preterm delivery overall. Um, so like I said, kind of mixed data in general. Um, a lot of these studies, like I said, tend to be, um, you know, tend to have smaller numbers since they were done usually at single institutions. Um, Nick, talk to me a little bit about birth and neonatal outcomes. So can babies get COVID um, if mom has COVID and what are the outcomes there? Yeah. So if we take a look at the CDC data, that MMRC um, review on birth and neonatal outcomes, um, they were able to review over 5,200 women who had lab confirmed COVID-19. Um, 610 of those babies, or about a fifth of that population, had reported COVID results for the babies. And this again happened somewhere between the end of March and mid-October of this year. Perinatal infection was found to be overall pretty uncommon. Only 16 babies tested positive. Um, and this occurred primarily among infants whose mother had COVID identified or diagnosed within one week of delivery. Eight of these infants were born preterm and they were admitted to the NICU. Of eight term infants who were positive, one was admitted to the NICU for fever and need for supplemental oxygen. Several others were not admitted and one did not have any information regarding what the neonatal outcome actually was. When you look at the birth and neonatal outcomes too and try to drive some information about preterm delivery, about 12.9% of these babies born to COVID positive moms were preterm. Um, 3.8% of those were less than 34 weeks, 9.1% of those were late preterm between 34 and 37 weeks, and the frequency of preterm delivery did not matter by maternal symptom status. So again, 
sort of a mixed bag out there on preterm birth, and it seems that at least vertical transmission is fortunately very, very rare. Faye, I guess let's get to the point that I think everybody wants to hear a little bit more about um, is COVID-19 vaccination in the obstetric population. Yeah, so I think before we talk about that, I kind of wanted to review a little bit about the data behind the vaccine itself and, and talk a little bit about what is an mRNA vaccine, because we actually don't really have other mRNA vaccines out that are currently approved for use. We're going to specifically talk about the Pfizer vaccine and talk about um, the New England Journal of Medicine article that came out talking about um, the Pfizer trial, um, because this is the vaccine that was approved in the U.S. and is potentially coming uh, to us soon. <laughs> We'll start out with talking about the mRNA vaccine, and I'm going to go very far back and talk about mRNA or messenger RNA. So if you're an infectious disease specialist, if you are a virologist, please skip ahead the next two minutes because you're going to be very embarrassed by this poor obstetrician trying to explain mRNA. Um, so what is mRNA? It is a single-stranded RNA molecule that is complementary to one of the DNA strands of a gene. So kind of reaching all the way back to med school, remember that mRNA leaves the cell nucleus and moves to the cytoplasm where they then code for different types of proteins. Ribosomes are then going to move along the mRNA, read the base sequence, use the genetic code to translate these three base triplet codons into a corresponding amino acid. So tRNA, which is attached to the amino acid, will match the mRNA to generate a sequence of amino acids, which then makes up a protein. My medical school professors, I apologize for that explanation. <laughs> so specifically, the COVID-19 vaccine, this mRNA piece delivers instructions to our cells to create a spike protein, which is a harmless piece of protein that is found on the surface of the COVID-19 virus that if you know you were infected by the virus would of course cause your symptoms. However, this spike protein on the surface of the virus is itself harmless. Once the cell sees this mRNA, the cell is going to use that piece of mRNA to then make proteins, the spike protein, which is then which then it's going to present on the surface of the cell. Our immune system is going to recognize this protein that doesn't belong there and then begin to build up an immune response and make antibodies in response to the presence of this protein on the surface of our cell. Um, kind of like what would happen in a natural infection against COVID when, you know, your cell says, hey, I've been taken over and presents that protein on the surface of the cell. Remember, once mRNA is used, the cell gets rid of that material. So you don't get infected with COVID-19, and also this mRNA piece does not get re-encoded into our DNA. At the end of the process, your immune system will recognize these surface proteins from COVID-19, have the ability to fight them off from the memory ability from your memory T and B cells. And so if you do come in contact with COVID-19, your immune system will be ready. So Nick, I think I also wanted to, you know, answer some questions that I've been hearing out there in the community um, where people have some doubts about the vaccine itself, one of which is how was the vaccine developed so fast? I mean, there are other vaccines out there which take years and years and years and years. And so is there something that people were skipping um, to, to make this vaccine? Were they overlooking things? Like how did it get through so fast? I mean, this was kind of an unprecedented effort, I think, is the bottom line. Now, most of the time, vaccine trials take a really, really long time because there are hangups and things that have absolutely nothing to do with the actual science of it. So, you know, you think about all of the potential obstacles to getting a therapeutic to market or right. getting a vaccine to market. You know, you got to go like you got to have plausibility or thought process first, like something, a question to answer. And then you've got to go to an IRB and get all of the human subjects research approval. 
you got to get the grant funding or potentially a couple cycles to get through grant funding to say, yes, we can do this. And potentially, you know, even then you've got to get additional money or additional grants or get different sites to try and sign up to also be part of this trial. So you're powered sufficiently enough. Um, And all of this kind of got erased because of a Herculean effort to get everybody on the same page. Mm -hmm. Um, And no, there was a lot of funding at the same time, too, that came out of the Operation Warp Speed. To review quickly, Operation Warp Speed is a partnership with Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC, the NIH, um, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Developmental Authority, um, and the Department of Defense. And since March, HHS in particular has given a ton of money to vaccine research. We'll have a link on the website kind of to just go over exactly how this was, and it's not exhaustive, but basically Pfizer got almost $2 billion in July for the production of 100 million doses of vaccine. Congress directed almost $10 billion to the overall effort of vaccine development and distribution prior to that. Um, and money was allocated for 14 candidates for vaccine development. So there was a lot of competition to try and get to the front of the line here. Most of the time, probably needless to say, vaccine research doesn't get all this much money at once. Um, they're kind of not a super investment, if you think about it, right? They're not a therapeutic. Right, yeah. They prevent disease. And you don't necessarily expect a huge return on investment. But this, again, was sort of an unusual time. Um, and an unusual need. So really, really a unique story. Um, So we talked about it being developed so fast, but we talked about too how things are just different. So do we think that the vaccine is safe? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the biggest things that people get hung up about is, well, how could we have done these trials the normal way and done them effectively if things went so quickly? The mRNA vaccines have actually been in development for almost 30 years. So in 1990, researchers were able to get the mRNA vaccine to work in mice. And after that, Dr. Carrico and Weissman have been working on creating an mRNA vaccine. So really, even though we think that this technology overall is pretty new, it's really been in the works for 30 years. Looking at the Pfizer vaccine in general and looking at, you know, the the article in the New England Journal of Medicine, the phase three clinical trial began in July. They enrolled 43,661 participants in total. So, you know, one arm gets placebo, one arm gets the actual vaccine. Um, and 41,135 participants received a second dose of some type. A very, very large number of people were in the phase three trial, um, which at least to me, says that they've tested it on definitely enough people. Looking at um, data that we have for even a lot of other therapeutics that we give to our patients, sometimes we don't achieve numbers that big. The trial concluded in November on November 13th. Um, so we have at least, you know, three and a half months worth of data from just the phase three part of the clinical trial. And then overall, I think a lot of people are asking, well, what about the long-term outcomes? Um, and I will say that my thought process is at least mRNA has a pretty short half-life and gets destroyed by the body once it's been given. And so really, I feel like the mRNA portion of this vaccine, I don't expect there to be different long-term outcomes just because that mRNA really isn't around for that long. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the findings of the actual trials, so looking at 20 days, eight days after the first dose of the vaccine, and remember that is because we needed time for the vaccine to work. So for our immune systems to work and build up that immune response, um, there were 170 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the study. 
162 of those were in the placebo group, so people who did not get the vaccine, versus only eight in the va vaccine group. And so you can see how different that number is. The efficacy was demonstrated consistently over age, gender, race, and ethnicity demographics, and the efficacy was 95% overall and 94% in adults who are greater than 65 years of age. In terms of safety, it was very well tolerated across all populations, and there were no serious safety concerns observed. Um, the only grade three adverse event that was greater than 2% in frequency was fatigue, which was 38.8%, and headache, which was 2%, um, which, you know, I feel like a lot of these outcomes, I almost feel like, you know, those are, those aren't necessarily side effects. Those are just how vaccines are supposed to work because they're <laughs> supposed to promote an immune response from the person who gets the vaccine. So I very much expect people to have a little fever, have some headache and have some fatigue after receiving the vaccine itself. Older adults tended to report fewer and milder solicited adverse effects following the vaccination, which was also great. Um, so overall, I felt like this was pretty good and pretty convincing data that this is a safe vaccine and that it is quite effective. The other thing that I had heard about, Nick, um, was that there were some reports and some news media that were saying like six people died at this Pfizer phase three trial. So looking at the data, what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, it's true. There were six people that did die during the trial. Um, four of those people were in the placebo arm of the trial for what that's worth. So two persons died in the actual vaccine arm. Of those two, kind of the circumstances reported were that one had a serious adverse event likely related to arteriosclerosis and died three days after the first dose. Um, the other had a cardiac arrest 60 days after the second dose and died three days after that. And both of these individuals were over the age of 55. Of the four that died in the placebo arm, again, not sure how an injection of saline would be kind of mechanistically correlated to this. Just to review, one died eight days after dose one from an unknown type of event. One died of a hemorrhagic stroke 15 days after the second injection. One died 34 days after the second dose from an unknown event. And one died of a myocardial infarction 16 days after the first dose. Mechanistically speaking, it seems like these are not different between the two arms of the trial and are more likely to be attributed to random chance than they are to some effect from the vaccine itself or totally from agree. the placebo arm. Right. And I, I would say that out of a trial of 44,000 people, it makes sense that, you know, there are people who may get sick and actually die from other causes within a, within a three and a half month period. Yeah. And, you know, if we extend it further to sort of other severe adverse events that are non-fatal, um, there were no difference between the vaccine and the placebo groups. Um, the vaccine group kind of just to review it had higher rates of appendicitis, acute MI, and CVA um, at the whopping rates of 0.04%, 0.02%, and 0.02% respectively. The placebo arm had higher rates of pneumonia, atrial fibrillation, and syncope at 0 0.03, 0 0.02, and 0.02% respectively. Um, and I think as you were saying, Faye, I, I don't think that these are real differences. Um, and if you set a p-value that's there, you're going to find random things 5% of the time with a p of 0.05 that's there at least a chance. But that's just statistically what we've defined as significant. Right. right. Um, and so in a large data set like this, small numeric differences can be statistically significant. So again, kind of looking at those things and trying to think mechanistically, I would be surprised if either the placebo or the 
vaccine itself would be the cause of any of these severe adverse events that we've discussed. Right. And I'm not really sure how like, you know, saline would cause more AFib or syncope. All right. So finally, Faye, I guess now that we've reviewed the adverse events and such, what about pregnant people? That's who we care about, right? Yes. Um, But unfortunately, pregnant and breastfeeding people were not included uh, in this study. And in in fact, were not included in any of the studies that I could find about any of the the COVID-19 vaccines. However, currently, the FDA recommendation about the Pfizer vaccine has not excluded pregnant and breastfeeding people from getting it. Um, And SMFM is in agreement. They recommend that pregnant and lactating people have access to the vaccine and they can engage in discussion about potential benefits and unknown risks with their providers. And unfortunately, by not including pregnant and breastfeeding people in these trials, it means that this is putting clinicians in a very difficult position where they have to counsel their patients without any specific data. The good news in all of this is that if pregnant or breastfeeding people decide to get the vaccine, they can sign up for vSafe, which is a vaccine monitoring system through the CDC that will check in with you to see how you're doing. So at least we would have some data in the future from a system like this. All right, Nick. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I'm sure that there are still a million questions that our listeners have that, you know, we of course also have just because there still isn't really long-term data about the COVID-19 vaccine itself. One question I have, of course, is, you know, do we need booster shots and how often do we need to get booster shots for something like this? Um, Does immunity wear off? Um, But since we've kind of talked about what we wanted to talk about today, let's go ahead and summarize. Absolutely. So we started off again talking about the data that we've learned since the last time Faye and I visited COVID-19 in March. Um, And there's so much more data about pregnancy, but just reinforces what our suspicions were back then. Morbidity and mortality for pregnant women are much more significant, and the risk for severe COVID-19 illness is higher for pregnant persons. Um, There are also disparities in COVID-19 illness for pregnant persons of different races and ethnicities. And so, again, we know based on the data that exists that pregnant people are at much higher risk for poor outcomes as a result of contracting COVID-19. We also discussed um, some other birth and neonatal outcomes from COVID-19, looking at the CDC data, and it looks like perinatal infection itself is quite uncommon. Only 2.6% of the babies that had COVID results were positive for COVID, and it also looked like there was a perhaps increased risk of preterm delivery at 12.9% in women who were diagnosed with COVID um, compared to the baseline rate of 10.2% in 2019. However, frequency of preterm delivery did not differ by maternal symptom status, according to this data. We then talked a bit about the vaccine itself. Um, The vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine that is approved in the United States right now is a messenger RNA or mRNA vaccine. Again, mRNA is that single-stranded RNA molecule that Faye talked about reaching back to medical school um, that codes for proteins. The mRNA that is used in the vaccine codes for the COVID-19 spike protein that our cells then use as an identifying target to build up antibody immunity against. We then talked a little bit about some safety concerns and questions that, you know, we've heard from the media, from our peers, even from our patients about why the vaccine was developed so fast. And if it have done so, how could it be as safe as it as it is reported to be? We talked about the fact that Operation Warp Speed has increased funding for this vaccine and also increased the ability of, of vaccine trials to go forward unhindered and recruit many more people 
much more quickly and to do the science much more quickly than normal. Um, and we also talked about uh, safety itself of the phase three clinical trial. Finally, we ended with talking about whether pregnant and breastfeeding people should receive the vaccine. Again, they were unfortunately excluded from the studies, all of the studies of vaccines, um, which we don't agree with. Um, but the FDA has not excluded pregnant and breastfeeding people from receiving the vaccine and SMFM and ACOG are in agreement that these patients have access to the vaccine. The recommendation is that you engage in a discussion about the potential benefits and unknown risks and a shared decision-making type of discussion with the patient. All right, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show for some swag or a shout out, go on to www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, www.CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to email us with questions that you have about the COVID vaccine, about COVID and pregnancy in general. We may not be the best people to ask those questions to, but you can email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.